So we've had a great time of worship this morning, uh, and uh, it just so happens that the songs that the Lord laid on our hearts today really fit with this conclusion that uh, I feel like God is wanting us to draw out from this prayer series and from this conversation around prayer. And I want to kind of talk about um, kind of what my goal has been all along uh, and, and what my aim has been throughout the series, and what I hope will be a lasting uh, a legacy of this conversation that will be on your hearts. And, and this isn't just through this series, but anytime I preach, every time I preach, my aim is to do three things when it comes to preaching who God is. My aim is to make sure that, uh, or try my best to preach God bigger, better, and brighter than anything or anybody else in this world. I think he deserves that from pulpits. I think he deserves that from our lives to project this idea and proclaim this truth that God is bigger, God is better, God is brighter, um, that God is bigger than whatever you're going through. That's my goal with every message, that no matter what you're going through, it may be tough, it may be gruesome, it may be difficult, and not to underestimate or underscore any of that. It may be great, but God is bigger, God is greater. God is better than what you're tempted by or discouraged by. Yes, this world allures us and tempts us with a lot of bright and shiny things. This world tries to get us to come in its direction. It tries to deceive us and tries to control us and trap us. But God is better and draws us in with something sweeter. God is also brighter. He's brighter than whatever your life is darkened by or shadowed by. There is a great shadow over our world, not just in this day and age, but always because of sin. But God's light is brighter. Jesus is the light of the world. And that light has shined into darkness and the darkness will not win. And it's my goal every time I preach to make sure these three things are put on blast about God. Now, I feel like religion, uh, in some ways intentionally because of the enemy's tactics, other ways unintentionally, I feel like religion has made God so small through the years. Uh, and don't get me wrong, God is personal, God is approachable, God is intimate, but God is not small. Religion makes him small, though. And I spent years in, as a part of the church watching and observing people who talk about God in such a gimmicky way and pray to God in such a gimmicky way. And that's really what has inspired this series. Uh, they'll, they'll talk about him like he's this intimidating figure, but behind the scenes, they pull out all these loopholes and all of these tricks that essentially allow them to manipulate him and do whatever they want to with him and bend him in whatever direction they want. Uh, in fact, it reminds me a lot of how society trains us to be, uh, at least it trains men to be this way. We're trained to be tough and gruff on the surface, but uh, we have become so addicted to so many vices and fleshly things. We're so easily bought and paid for when nobody's looking. Uh, we imagine God to be like us. We imagine God to be small. Now we portray him as something big, but in behind the scenes and the way that we deal with him, it's like he's brought down to our level. That's why I think our prayers are so shallow. It's why our prayers are so detached from God's will. It's why Jesus' teaching on prayer might be a little offensive to us because it really challenges what we think about God and how, what we know about God and how we pray to God. I, I really feel like all this stems from a lack of proper presentation of God from churches and pulpits. I'm not blaming anybody. I've done the wrong thing plenty of times in my, in my day, but I'm just accepting and communicating what I feel like is my responsibility to properly proclaim him, that there should be nothing, uh, nothing more clear than every Sunday from pulpits about who God is. See, I believe 
that when God is proclaimed as bigger and better and brighter, I think a few things are accomplished. I think that nothing can keep us down. No matter what might be discouraging you or holding you back, nothing can keep you down. Nothing defines you uh, compared to what God wants to do and do with you and for you and through you. Nothing can lead you astray. Yes, temptations will come. Yes, things will be deceiving and will try to trap you, but nothing can lead you astray from the better way that God gives you. And I believe that nothing can shut him out. Yes, there's darkness, but God is brighter. Now, of course, something might keep you down. Something might lead you astray. Something might shut him out if that something is allowed to become more present and powerful to us than God. But come on, is anything more powerful than God? Is anything more alluring, more captivating, more compelling, more irresistible? Yet we often live our lives as if some things have our attention and have our devotion more than God does. Or at least our lives tell that story, don't they? For my earliest days in ministry, really back before I first, when I first fell in love with Jesus and the Bible and theology, I believe, and I truly believe this, that if presented and proclaimed with purity and with passion, Jesus can be irresistible. You may reject him, but the Holy Spirit will be present in such a way through preaching and teaching of his name that you will have to reject a supernova-sized dose of God's grace to do so. And when I talk about grace... I talk about the power of God, the resurrection power of God. Yes, sin is powerful, but as powerful as sin is, grace is bigger, grace is better, and grace is brighter. Maybe you're sensing a theme today. We'll hear those words a lot. Because God is bigger and better and brighter. If we can just get that word out and not waste time on silly, marginal, unnecessary, small things that the church often gets its hands in. This is something that I that obviously I'm very passionate about because God deserves the platform, doesn't he? Not religion or man-centered ideas that are just ego strokes for somebody. We desperately need God and he deserves us. Now I bring all this up for a number of reasons. We're concluding this series on prayer today, which has been all about zooming in. I hope that we've at least accomplished this, zooming in, like when you touch your phone screen and you zoom in on a picture. I hope the last couple of weeks have allowed you to zoom in and focus on God. And I hope that you've learned to do some things over the last couple of weeks, primarily surrender to, trust in and follow him. That's been the three pillars of our three conversations that we should surrender to God, trust in God and follow him and him alone above and beyond anything or anyone else. And I feel like when we hear the full story of Jesus, the one teaching us how to pray, the one who convinced the generation that they didn't know how to pray, but that he clearly did. When we see the full widescreen 4K version of his story, we're left with the question, why haven't we surrendered to God? I truly believe when you get the gospel so clear and powerfully presented to you that we should be left with a, with a question, why haven't I surrendered? And I hope as we've taught on prayer and we've confronted ourselves with these teachings of Jesus that we've asked ourselves, why have I not surrendered to him? What good reason do I have to not surrender to him? Why haven't I trusted in him? Why am I not following him? Because Jesus is the God who is bigger and better and brighter, wrapped in flesh just like ours, wrapped in flesh that is smaller and worse and dim when compared to his glory as seen in history and observed in the heavens. Yet God existed in full without limit as a person, restrained 
the glory and holiness and wrath in order to show us that God can be known in spite of our sin. You know, Jesus went on to suffer like one of us, as one of us, for all of us. He bled out and died in our place. He did this willingly to save you from your sin and reconcile you to God. And in his resurrection, he arose bigger, better, and brighter than anything that has ever graced this earth, over flesh, over sin, over death. And now we have no excuse. We have no good reason to not surrender to him, not trust in him, and follow him. Jesus is now the exalted God man, further glorifying God, who made us, became one of us, and overcame all of our shortcomings for us. And now he rules over us. Indeed, when we get the full picture of God, he is way bigger, way better, and way brighter than we could ever imagine, isn't he? 14 years ago this weekend, knowing that God had been dealing with my heart about totally surrendering and trusting to God, trusting God, following him completely, I went to an altar at my home church to lay down my dreams and my plans and my desires to say yes to whatever God had in store for me. Now, this may be an experience exclusive to my own life, but I have my doubts about that. But having known and belonged to Jesus for some time before, this was a moment in my life when I realized that there was something more for me and I could not resist it any longer. How foolish would I be to do so? I was just a teenager, but my my propensity to sin and waste my life then was just as high as it is now and it is just as high in the days to come as anybody else's. As time would pass, I began searching God's word for the God who invited me to surrender, to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The God who invited me to trust in him that would rely on his daily provisions in my eternal pardon. The God who invited me to follow him and therefore unfollow and avoid sin and its traps. Over time, the Lord's prayer became this template that really opened my eyes to a bigger and better and brighter pathway to walk each day. And in fact, the very last line, the send-off of the Lord's prayer is what constantly reminds me the decision to surrender to, trust in and follow Jesus is the only logical decision we can make each and every day. I want to say a word about the end of the Lord's Prayer. Some of your Bible's newer translations may not have these last two lines in them, but they're definitely in the margins. The reason for that is some scholars wonder, uh, the, earliest trans, the earliest manuscripts don't have these, some of them don't have these last two lines, but the earliest churches that we have records of in the first century, all when repeating the Lord's Prayer included what we have in King James, New King James Version. So I wanted to clarify that. If you're looking at the Lord's Prayer and you think it ends with deliver us from evil, Uh, and in the margins you wonder why there's some extra words there that's why Uh, now most of your Bibles they have the full Lord's Prayer as we've learned it and known it for years Uh, and without a doubt Jesus taught us to pray in this full model in this full way so I want to read the whole Lord's Prayer before we focus in on this last two lines that really makes it so obvious what our response should be I want to talk about, though, what our response will be to what Jesus has showed us. Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us or we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. For yours 
is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to focus on these three, on the three words that are at the beginning of that last stanza, for yours is, for yours is. Now, this is a summary statement that Jesus is making that connects us to these last few words. So essentially he's saying, for thine, for thine or for yours is, and what he's saying is this, we pray this because, or since all this is true, or since this is true that's to come, or after all, as in these next few words basically make it obvious why we just prayed what we prayed. For yours is, we pray this because yours is, or since yours is, or after all, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, the reason why we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The reason why we surrender, the reason why we trust, the reason why we follow is this, because your kingdom, your power, and your glory is greater and everlasting. Everything belongs to you. So why wouldn't we pray this? Do we have any other reason not to pray this? So essentially, if I can rephrase it, this is what he's saying. Of course we surrender to trust and follow you. The kingdom, the power, and the glory is all yours. It all belongs to you. So yes, we are going to surrender to you, God. Yes, we're going to trust in you, God. Yes, we're going to follow you, God. Why wouldn't we? And what sort of audacious creature would we be to not? Hmm. We have all crossed that line before, haven't we? But Jesus says, of course we surrender to. Of course we follow. Of course we will trust because it all belongs to you. How could our lives not be dedicated to making a name for and exalting the name that is Jesus Christ? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the only visible image of the invisible God. He's the one by whom all things were made and through which all things are held together. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the preeminent, the omniscient one. He's the way and the truth and the life. He is the light of the world. He is the Lamb of God. He is God with us. He is our advocate. He is our redeemer. He is our shepherd. He is our savior. He is our Lord and he is our King. Why wouldn't we surrender and trust and follow him? He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. That's who Jesus is, the bigger and better and brighter God of the universe. To whom belongs the kingdom, the power, and the glory, as in there isn't anything on his level. There may be other kingdoms and there may be other powerful beings and there may be other glorious things, but they are not anywhere near his height. I hope this has been impressed on our hearts over the last couple of weeks. I hope we felt the power of God's grace draw us and invite us and compel us to surrender and trust and follow Jesus on the basis of around this conversation as laid out in the, the end of this prayer, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. Now that amen is actually a pretty big part of this as well. 
Amen, most of you know, is a way of saying truly or definitely or absolutely. Amen is a confirmation statement. It's a response to something. It's an agreement to something. It's essentially you're saying, let it be so or let it be done as you have said it should be. So amen is your activation. Amen is your commitment. Amen is your signature. Amen is your stamp. It makes it official. Don't get me wrong, the word's just a word. You can say it and not mean it, but this is the ultimate sign of the posture we talked about in week one. How we are praying is what matters. Amen confirms I'm praying in submission. I'm praying in trust. I'm praying with commitment. Amen says I'm all in. Does that make sense? Amen says, I'm all in, God. So after a month of this, are you all in with Jesus' model for prayer and more importantly, for life? You know, 14 years ago, I said to God in an altar, I'm all in. I'd like to say I've kept that vow, (laughs) but of course I've stumbled more than I have remained on the straight and narrow. If not for his grace and his faithfulness, who knows where I'd be? Well, actually, I kind of know where I'd be. Uh, I, I definitely know where I would be because I know where I was headed back then. Remember, I was raised in church, so I doubt I would have spiraled out into some blatantly worldly lifestyle, though I could have. I doubt I would have. Uh, not because that nature isn't in me, but religion taught me how to hide it, and religion taught me how to pretend that I didn't have it. Without God's grace, I'd probably be some religious hypocrite who is a judgmental and condescending person that no one likes to be around but likes to pretend he's better than everybody else. Because that's what lies in my flesh. All those years ago, as God began calling me into ministry, I began searching out for God as the Bible presents him. And I was fascinated by so many things. I remember those early years where every page wowed me again and again. And as I learned Greek and Hebrew, every page wowed me again and again and again. But a story that really stood out to me that I became so interested in is the story of King Solomon, as it's told in Second Chronicles. And if you would like to turn there with me this morning, I would love for you to. Probably because Solomon is, at, at this point in the story, is at a similar teenage point in his life. And this is when he begins seeking the Lord. He is thrust into the limelight to become king after his father David. He did so, uh, so successfully. He did it out of obligation more than anything. As he was becoming king, he began to seek the Lord. He didn't want to make a fool of himself uh, as he was stepping into his father's shoes. And I think we all can relate to that as we pass from high school to whatever's next. There's pressure and there's expectations. The Bible tells us that God came to Solomon and pretty much offered him the world. He said, Solomon, ask me anything and I'll give you anything which we learn later that this was obviously a test. But in this moment, I want you to imagine this. In this moment, a teenage Solomon is on the cusp of inheriting the kingdom and the power and the glory. In this moment, he shows an incredible amount of perspective and maturity. When given the opportunity to go from incredibly powerful to practically invincible, He asked for something hardly any 19-year-old or anybody would ever ask for. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, just to get a snapshot of the story, verse number 7 tells this. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said, Ask, what shall I give you? 
And Solomon said to God, you have shown great mercy to my father David and made me king in his place. Now, O Lord, let your promise to David, my father, be established for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me, what would you ask for if you were given this carte blanche? What would you ask for if you were given this unlimited gift card from God? Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this, pe- this great people of yours? Solomon says, God, I, I just want to have the knowledge that I need. I want to have the perspective that I need to be the person you've appointed me to be. God, I realize that I, 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 I have an office that is so incredibly powerful Glorious, I am the king of your people. But I don't know what I'm doing, God. And I want to make sure I use it for you and you alone. Now, we make a big deal out of this because we know that God's response to Solomon is, Solomon, since you asked for this, I'm going to give you so much more. But Solomon never made it about the much more. I want to make this very clear. Our fleshly, greedy minds go to the fact that God, Solomon became very rich and very successful and very, very you know, prominent and very well-known. But Solomon never made it about that stuff. The more stuff Solomon got, the more determined he was to therefore even more so use it for God and God alone. Now, the first act as king, Solomon determines in his heart to build a palace for the king. Solomon was a king, but he was not the king. He knew that. David had laid the groundwork for a temple for God and his people to commune in a house of worship. This would not be like a pagan temple. Solomon made sure of that in his inaugural address. If you flip over at chapter two, listen to what Solomon says in verses four through six as he's addressing the people for the first time as king. Behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him, to burn him sweet incense for the continual showbread, for the burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbath and new moons and the the feasts of the Lord. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. The temple which I build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. And listen to this. But who is able to build him a temple? Since heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him, who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? So Solomon wanted the people to understand the offerings that they would make in this house would not be an attempt to barter God, but an act of adoration and submission to God. Very big difference there. It wouldn't be like the pagan temples where you went in and as much as you put in the system, you got out. It was a place where they would go and surrender to God and say, God, you are king. Heaven of all heavens cannot contain you. We are so blessed to know you. What is your will for us? In fact, when they dedicated the house a short while later, the first offering made was not gold or silver or lamb or beast. You'll be surprised what it actually was. Flip over to chapter 6 as we see Solomon in his time of dedication. Again, I encourage you to read this whole story. It's so powerful. But I want to drive home a very specific message this morning. So chapter 6, verse number 12 is when the temple has been finished, the altar has been furnished, and Solomon stands before the people. And, And just this has been one of the most fascinating snapshots of the Bible to me all my life. And I hope it can register with you all like it does me. 
Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, verse number 12, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. You know what that's a sign of? Surrender. You know who else spread his hands out like this? Clearly, there's an image here that God wants us to see. Here's the king, and it says in verse 13, Solomon made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and set it in the midst of the court. Another important fact, bronze in the Old Testament was the metal that symbolized sacrifice. That the bronze altar at the front of the tabernacle, this was the element that reminded people of they, how they should sacrifice, surrender to, submit to God. It was one of the lower elements, but it was a sign of us lowering ourselves. So here's Solomon. He builds a scaffold out of bronze and he stands. Now imagine, imagine our modern day equivalent to this. When a king or a leader or a president gets in front of people, he's high lifted or she's high and lifted up. Everybody is ooing and on and clapping and bowing and wow, look who they are. Can't believe I'm in the presence of them. Solomon sets up on this scaffold in the midst of the court. He stood on it, and I, I can't tell you, I can't express how powerful this would have been, how jarring this would have been. He kneels down on his knees before the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and starts to pray. Oh, Lord, my God. Can you imagine how powerful that image must have been for all the people of Israel as they gathered at this scene? The king of kings in their eyes, the kingdom, the power, the glory belongs to this man. And in this moment when they're lauding him with all the honor and the glory, he bows down and says, don't give it to me. I am a king, but I'm not the king. What if a leader in our day and age would do this? We would be completely shocked. A dignified leader of the countries in our world would never bow himself in front of all the people of, of his country as if saying, hey, don't worship me, don't praise me, don't honor me because we're in the presence of somebody greater. But you know what would happen if somebody did that? You know what I think happened when Solomon bowed? Everybody bowed because he signified to them they were on holy ground. Not his ground, but heaven's. You know what Solomon did in this moment? He began his reign with a posture of total surrender and trust and a commitment to follow God and use his place to make a name for God, not himself. Solomon understood something that Jesus has been trying to teach us for several weeks. As he held the most coveted seat in the world, he believed that as great as his seat was, there was a throne even higher than his. And he made it his goal. He made it his desire to defer his kingdom, his power, and his glory to add to the bigger and better and brighter name of his God. You see, as he mentioned earlier, he was well aware how glorious God was compared to anything else that he'd ever put his hand on or would ever have his name on. He refused to be fooled by the modicum of success when he knew the bigger picture. Solomon had incredible foresight embodying and modeling what Jesus himself would teach later. 
as Solomon on the cusp of all this power, it echoes something that Jesus taught us in the Gospels. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. And Jesus confirms something that all of us have. This nature of preservation. We talked about this. This nature that wants to preserve but never can. We spend our lives trying to preserve what will be 100% lost. So why not decide early that we're going to live a life invested in that which will last. Is what Jesus is saying there. And Jesus asked that provocative question, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can you give in return for his soul? As in we value our connection to God more than we value anything else, whether we realize it or not. See, Solomon understood everything not used to honor God as mere vanity. He refused to find his identity in that which was simply a means to a bigger and better and brighter end. Solomon showed a great amount of restraint and belief in future glory and inheritance. It's as if he lived by this, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Until he didn't. After a while, Solomon became so powerful and so wealthy and so influential. The kings and queens of the world came and lauded him with more. There was a point in his life where he had to come to terms with the fact that he might not always have that favor and fortune forever. As he began getting near the end of his life, he began seeing how fleeting his life was and how temporary his treasure and power actually was. And he began to worry. You see, perhaps even more challenging than a young man with the world at his fingertips was being an older man with the world slipping from his hands. Solomon had entered, had entered his reign with two open hands, but as anxiety crept in and fear tempted him again and again, eventually he blinked and he clenched his fist in an attempt to hold on to it all. Soon he repeatedly began clutching and clinging to this world. Suddenly, and not instantly, as it was a slow leak, he found himself compromised in so many ways. He began aligning himself with other nations and he began making these marriages that weren't anything personal or actually intimate, but they were these marriages that were alliances with other kings that married off their daughters to Solomon in order to promise prosperity and peace between the two nations. But behind these wives were idols and false gods that promised preservation and pleasure. And after a while, Solomon, well, he was tempted a little bit too much. The scripture says that Solomon was old. His wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. And the scriptures tell us that Solomon's alliances began to bite him rather than bless him. And soon he had a royal mess on his hands and eventually the kingdom began crumbling underneath him. Solomon would sit down, a much, wise, a much older, shameful man, and he would write in a memoir write a memoir that reflects on those great things that he had rescinded on in his later years. If you read this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll hear many of the themes that we've talked about this morning and over the last several weeks. Yes, it's a little bit do as I say, not as I did. But more than that, it's a man who knew both success and regret, who wanted to impart both his wisdom and his folly on a future generation so that we might not question which was the right path to take. The name Ecclesiastes comes from the first verse of the book where Solomon introduces himself as a preacher, as someone who collects ideas and speaks them to an assembly. 
I don't know if it was 11 hour sermon or 11 part sermon, but it's 11 chapters or 12 chapters of some really amazing treasures from a man who seen, who saw and had did everything. And in it, he contrasts us with God. He characterizes the divide between us and the vast extreme, uh, the difference between us and God, how God was bigger and better and brighter than us in the world. And he invites us to surrender and trust and follow him. I believe this book would be a perfect appendix to study in the aftermath of our study on prayer. But I want to show you in closing a few verses that I think punctuate why its wisdom can help ground us in the right posture. Again, from the heart and mind of a man who saw life at both ends of the spectrum. Listen to what Solomon writes at the end of his life. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he speaks of when he was a young man. But then he speaks of when he was an older man. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. So in this moment, he's describing what happened when he began to look at the world and chase after the world. It's as if he was striving after the wind. It could never be contained. It could never be caught up with. It always took and led him a little bit farther away from where he wanted to be. He says that later on, I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained. And this was the richest man in the world. This was the most successful man in the world. But when he took his eyes off God, when he began to live for his kingdom, his power and his glory, he suddenly, well, I'll let him tell you, he began to hate his life because what is done under the sun was grievous to him. It was all vanity, striving after the wind. As he shifted his faith and unfollowed the Lord in favor of lesser things, he goes on to write about how foolish it is to live a life with two clenched fists. For selfish ambition, he writes about how when we fall, we will, unless we're surrounded by God's people, we won't have anyone to pick us up. He writes about these things that are so powerful and pertinent to our generation. Maybe the crown jewel of his book comes in chapter five when Solomon calls back to his temple project in his early days when given the chance to ask God for anything. And bringing this all full circle, listen to his wise, wise words. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing or that it's evil, as in this idea of bringing something to God. Look at me, what can I get in response? Solomon says, when you go to the house of God, it's better to draw near to listen. Why would we want to, why would we want to listen? What is the purpose of that? Be not rash with your own mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Isn't that some pretty amazing logic? Therefore, let your words be few when you go to God in prayer. Well, if I don't have anything to say, what am I praying for? That's back to week one, isn't it? Surrender, trust, commitment to follow. You know what he is saying here? That God's revelation are greater than your dreams. You've got some amazing dreams and I'm not saying they aren't inspired by God's word. Things that God wants to bless you with and give you, but our dreams are not as important as God's revelation and God's plan for your life. Our dreams are short-lived. You'll wake up eventually. But God's revelation, God's plan, they have no ends. 
Solomon, like Jesus after him, tells us how crucial it is to prioritize our prayer lives. It reminds us that it's not about what we pray for, but how we pray. He signs off on this memoir like this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God who is in secret, who sees all things that are secret, which is why we should prioritize stepping back from this world, unplugging, disconnecting, and making the secret intentions of our heart known to God so that they don't show up in ways that we'll later regret. Solomon says the end, the duty, the only fulfilling way to live is to center everything around and actively, intentionally, and persistently seek to dedicate everything to and for God. Solomon says, if you want to know where I got off on the wrong foot, it's whenever I stood up. It's whenever I began to take back what I had laid down at God's feet. It's whenever my throne became more important than God's throne. It's whenever I began to find myself in the very things I had once dedicated to God. Of course, Solomon is right, isn't he? For we know, for to God belongs the kingdom, the power, and the glory. For years, Solomon could say amen to this until he couldn't. The question remains over us, can you say amen to this? Have we taken the bait of this world only to bait ourselves for the enemy? In so many ways we have, as Solomon says, it's good for us to consider our nature, compare it to God early and often. But maybe you're wondering, why did this sting so bad for Solomon? We all make mistakes. We all mess up. I mean, come on, Solomon. You're being hard on yourself, buddy. You lived a great life. You did a great thing for God and you messed up in your older years. It's going to be okay. You know why this stung so much for Solomon? Because he ignored not only because he ignored it for so many years, but because his father, David, had taught him to pray from a very young age, a very specific way. As a boy, David taught him a prayer that the book of Ecclesiastes draws heavily from in language and in theme. One specific prayer that we know David taught Solomon because he repeats the themes in this book. I want to close by showing it to you all. From Psalm 39, this is a prayer that David prayed all his life. O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath or as a mere gust of wind. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool who wonders why somebody that knew what you know walked away from it. Don't you see these themes of vanity and chasing the wind, exhausting our life on things that don't replenish our souls, how they contrast to a God to whom belongs all the kingdom, the glory, and the honor? 
David prayed for God to peel back the facade, to reveal the raw, unfinished nature that he lives in. Do you ever stand in front of the mirror early in the mornings or maybe after a long day before you go to bed? Sometimes I do this. I, I, begin, I was praying this prayer pretty seriously this week. And then yesterday I felt like I was between an aneurysm and a heart attack. So <laughs> I was made to know how fleeting my days are, not to make light of that. But, you know, I was praying that prayer all week. And I just felt like I was at the end of my rope yesterday. Just tired physically, emotionally, and just a lot of, phys- a lot of things going on this week. Uh, working here, doing this, committing to that, trying to take care of this. And I just, uh, I felt pretty bad. And then God whispered, he said, well, you you have been praying this prayer, by the way. And I began to think, you know what, God, I guess this is a good thing. Now, I hope you're not wore out and exhausted all the time. But God, I, I said, God, thank you for making me know how fragile I am. Thank you for making it so apparent to me that my life is a vapor. I'm here today, gone tomorrow. And also, God, thank you for showing me how likely I am to mess it all up. And if you did not deliver me from evil, I would be the scorn of the fool. I would be the mockery of everyone that knows me. You see, it's so easy to lose sight of our true nature. And in contrast, God's bigger and better and brighter nature. Make no mistakes. The world's goal is to try to make you doubt that Jesus is bigger, that he's the best, and he's the brightest. The world's goal is to try to tempt you from trusting that Jesus is bigger and better and brighter. That he can pull you up, he can lead you from and he can shine his light in when it gets you down it wants to keep you down it leads you astray it wants you to remain lost when it gets us in the darkness it wants to get us used to it and desensitize us desensitize us from a superior way i don't know what god has showed you over the last month but i know he's shown me that there are bigger and better and brighter ways to pray And an even bigger and better and brighter God to surrender to, to trust in and follow with my whole heart. I've also been made aware of the inferior copies and substitutes that I often rely on in place or instead of Jesus. Solomon has shown us today that if we ever feel as if we're finding identity in anybody or anything but God, we should get rid of it as fast as we can or bring it to God and pray for him to redeem it for his glory and show us how to properly use it. Oh, that we would consider the end of the matter. Oh, that God might make us to know our end today. And may we bring everything to and under the name of Jesus. And may we surrender to, trust in, and follow the God who is bigger and better and brighter than all else. For to him, after all, to him belongs the kingdom, the power and the glory. Can you say amen to that? There are some days that we maybe can't because like Solomon, we get distracted, we get discouraged, we get defeated. But Jesus says you can lift up your head, you can trust in me, you can commit to me because after all, what did he teach us in week one? He has our every need in his hand. So may we say amen to this study of prayer and say, let it be so, let it be done because to you belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory. Take my life and let it be an offering 
for you and you alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this window into a story about a man who clearly is just like us. There were times when he was on his knees, but there were more times when he was on his feet. When his posture had shifted out of trusting you and surrendering to you and following you, and it was in lesser things and inferior copies. God, help us to see that Solomon of his youth that had the kingdom power and glory and he gave it to you. He surrendered it to you. He put it in your hands and help us to see that as he picked it back up later on, we are just as likely to ourselves that we live a constant on this life. We're in a constant journey where we must defer and commit to following and honoring and surrendering and submitting all things to you. God, help us to not be distracted by this world, discouraged by this world, defeated by this world, darkened by this world. But help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the bigger and better and brighter King of all kings who bids us to follow him. After all, to him belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory. Why wouldn't we follow and trust and surrender to him? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.